The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop coding that wallaby-related RSS aggregator and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 160 with guest Adam Kogan, recorded live Thursday, January 19th, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter and now offering public and private hands-on classes in VBNet 2005 and ASP.NET 2.0. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of component for ASP.NET development. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine leading independent magazine for .NET developers online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who is too busy managing a jillion podcasts to come up with a joke for silly old .NET rocks, Carl Franklin! Thank you, thank you very much, and you're listening to .NET Rocks, the original internet audio talk show for .NET developers, not Hansel Minutes, not... Polymorphic <laughs> podcast, not any of those very, very good, very awesome shows, but I do believe the first. And uh, Richard Campbell, how are you, sir, today? Before there was podcasting, there was .NET Rock. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's true. Absolutely true. Every word yeah. of it. So it's uh, been a good week for me. I've been working my butt off getting the shows out the door. The second week of our new shows, DNR TV and Hansel Minutes. And uh, Hansel Minutes especially is getting accolades all over the internet. I think if you type Hansel Minutes into Google, you get uh, something like 24,000, 25,000 hits. Wow. That's pretty good. And I loved your intro and show too. It was fabulous. Yeah, it was good. Get right to the point. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been working on our schedule for both .NET Rocks and .NET Rocks TV, and we're starting to fill out a nice lineup. Some great shows coming up. Yep. The thing with DNR TV is that uh, if the files are big, so we're using Flash to do everything online uh, just because it's easy, the online experience, but people really want to download. So what right. we did is we set up a, a horde of POP ambassadors who are seeding BitTorrent uh, stations, peers all over the country, uh, all over the world, actually. Really, yeah. And we had something like 32 seeds for DNR TV. So all you got to do is download Azurius at azurius.sf.net and uh, go click on the download link. Or any BitTorrent client, you know, BitLord, BitComet, 
Pick one. Yep. Just use BitTorrent. You'll be happier. You'll get the show sooner. Yes. Trust us. This is this is a good thing. And I also want to uh, just put this out there that we are upgrading our bandwidth to about uh, between 20 and 50 megabits and uh, going all the way up to 100 someday. So this is, this is probably going to happen within the next few weeks. I'm not sure how long it's going to take to get going, but uh, this is good news for us as well. And before we introduce Adam, this is I, I'm really excited, Richard, about having Adam Kogan on. Your, your brother in Australia... Yes, one of, one, of, one of my brothers. Yep. Uh, but before we do, I want to I read this email. We got this email that, you know, we, we like to read emails once in a while that people tell us how, how we've affected them or affected their lives or whatever. But this one was particularly cool, and I just want to read this. This is from Paul Scarlett in Oshawa, Ontario. <clears throat> Did I say that right? You Canadian yep. you? Oshawa. Oshawa? Mm-hmm. Dear .NET Rockers, I must thank you for the push. I've been listening to your show now for almost a year and was slowly getting the urge to get out into the .NET community and be active, maybe even present. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> About the time of your road show this past fall came the announcement of the Toronto Code Camp. I had listened to your daily shows and how the .NET community was a great place to share knowledge, so I suggested a presentation of .NET Nuke module development, which was accepted. So now I was officially going to be active Egads, what had I done? Uh, I developed supervisory. <laughs> now, what are you going to do? I developed supervisory process control software for material handling and manufacturing environments using Microsoft Tools, VB, SQL, and MSMQ, for example, as my day job. So my technical background was solid. However, my work on .NET was only a private reskilling effort to help move from VB6 to VBNet. I used the .NET Nuke framework as a learning tool for .NET in the overall web environment, and over the past two years, I have gained a great deal of knowledge. I'm now at a point where I offer modules for .NET Nuke from my website, but the idea of being classed as expert really had me wondering if I had done the right thing. The lineup of the other presenters was rather impressive, several MVPs, etc. However, your shows gave me the confidence to proceed as any effort would be received warmly. So I pressed on and developed the presentation. Well, the code camp just completed. It was a great success. Nearly 200 people attended. The organizers did a great job. See www.torontocodecamp.com. My session was standing room only. About 40 people attended my one-hour presentation. It was one of the small rooms, and I really enjoyed it. So please wow. pass along to your listeners that if you are considering presenting at some community event, just do it. It doesn't hurt. Even the seasoned professionals had to start somewhere. Again, thanks for so, the push. Absolutely true. Yeah, fabulous. And I, uh, I recently was talking to Microsoft Canada about the Toronto Code Camp. It was wildly successful. A couple of former uh, or previous uh, guests were on the show. Um, Kate Gregory and Barry Gervin both presented there. And you know right. who was really all over the place in that show? Our buddy Rob Windsor. Awesome. Was one of the folks that really made that show happen. It was very successful. Well, I know he has a lot to do with the Toronto Code, uh, the Toronto Devel uh, VB Users Group up there. For sure, yeah. yeah. He's, a, he's a big community guy and an MVP and, and worth every penny. Rob, you're our buddy. Thanks so much. But, you know, in talking to Tom Robbins, who started the Code Camps, uh, talk to him about it all the time. He now, that's really. That's your, your good friend. I mean, yeah. Tom Robbins and you've been working together a long time. Yeah, he's my DE in Boston. 
he uh, he is very adamant that it, that we should have the community up there doing the stuff, not just the experts. I mean, the experts you have to have them. They have to you know they have to come out and volunteer their time to do it. But yeah, you bet. It, but it's really all about uh, uh, it's a it's a hotbed for discovering new talent. Yeah. And we were just talking about this, this new talent idea, weren't we, Richard? We, we were talking about this. And of course, Paul, congratulations. I'm glad you did it. I'm glad you got out there. Obviously, it went well for you. I hope you'll, you'll keep participating out there. I mean, and you're right. We, Carl and I, we've been talking about the fact that uh, I mean, we've been in this game for a while, right? I mean, speaking and presenting all these kinds of things and, and really enjoying the fact that I see great new talented speakers coming up, yes. uh, doing great talks here, there, and everywhere. And uh, it's all good to see the market and the community thriving the way it is. It really is. It would it would be a disservice to the programmers out there if you know the same old guys were always uh, up at bat, you know, doing this, doing all the magazine articles and all the DNR appearances and all the code camps and all the VS lives and Dev connections and all those. You know, it's good to get uh, it's good to get some fresh blood in here. So. We're we're really excited for you, Paul. Good luck on your new career, and uh, there you go. So, Richard, let's just introduce Adam. I'm really excited, as I said before, to have Adam Kogan on the show, the chief architect at SSW, a Microsoft certified partner specializing in Office and .NET solutions. At SSW, Adam has been developing custom solutions for businesses across a range of industries, such as government, banking insurance, and manufacturing since 1990 for clients such as Microsoft, Quicken, and the Fisheries Research and Development Corporation. The Fisheries. Uh, Adam develops in SQL Server 2000, WinForms, and WebForms using both VBNet and C Sharp, Access 2002, Outlook 2002, Exchange Server 2000, and now Office 2003 using N-tier architecture. This might be an old bio because he says, and now Office 2003. Um, <laughs> one of his latest projects was the smart tag implementation for quick in Australia. Very cool. Adam is, is one of only two regional directors in Australia in this role. He is, uh, he regularly presents for Microsoft at events such as tech ed USA in Australia and visits Microsoft headquarters in Seattle to learn the latest on Microsoft strategic directions and to undertake training in development technologies. Welcome Adam Kogan. Hello, Carl. Hey. It's How good, are you going? It's good to have the both of you on the phone. <laughs> I, you, I feel you guys are like long-lost brothers. I don't know. Is that true? Well, it's it's basically true. I, I think we first met in 1997 at a conference, and it was one of those things where, uh, I don't know, within an hour of meeting, we were, we were like we'd always known each other, so it, it's... We don't get to see each other near enough, you know. We're we're on continents, but uh, uh, it's always a good time when we're together. Yeah, we seem to meet up on uh, any continent that's not our own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we keep bumping into. We were uh, in uh, Malaysia, in Europe, in uh, in uh, Tanzania. Wow. So, Adam, we spoke at uh, PDC 2003, I think we got together for the first time, and you showed me some of the stuff that you've been working on and the things that, and, and, and we talked a lot about the way you run your, uh, your software company. Uh, it's a little bit unusual. Yes, it is. Uh, 
I run uh, SSW. I've been doing that since uh, 1990, so a fair while now. We're based in Sydney, and uh, mainly we do custom software solutions for customers around Australia and you know, and the USA. And uh, we also do the the odd uh, developer tool. And they, I showed you some of the uh, older ones a few years ago, and they've changed a bit since then. Yeah. And you, in uh, another thing we're going to talk about this hour is um, your your rules for software development. You've come up with a, a whole series of uh, best practices that you have your guys use and, and also have extended out to the community and even built some software around that. Yeah. Uh, essentially, my interests uh, revolve a lot around efficiency, and I express and implement them through standards and rules. And I guess I'm after consistent outcomes and a consistent experience and and, uh, and quality. And so uh, I spend a fair bit of time uh, implementing uh, implementing rules and coming up with new standards. And uh, you're also uh, big into fitness and health, and you have uh, some sort of rules at your at your company about exercise. Uh, <laughs> yeah, essentially. Uh, I I feel exercise and health is a pretty important part of my life and I spend a, a fair bit of time keeping the, the guys healthy and I guess I started in the very beginning just by um, removing the chocolate biscuits and replacing it with fruit. So there was yeah. basically I was giving one healthy option and then I removed the, the soft drinks and the Coke and uh, just gave cold water. And uh, then, then uh, I... I extended it on a little bit more. I take all the guys away for a, a two-week retreat every year to a beach house. I get them up at 6 o'clock every morning and we do an hour uh, run or if they can't handle it, an hour walk, but they're, uh, they're out. And wow. It keeps them in shape at least once a year. You yep. spend a lot of time sort of mentoring uh, new, you know, young, energetic talent that way? Um, yeah, well, I, I run a user group in Sydney. Um so I've been the president of that since uh, 92, so a fair while. And so I get a lot of speakers and uh, a lot of guys, you know, giving it their first go. And, yeah. you know, it's quite amazing what uh, what you can get out of uh, 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds. They're, they're extremely, uh, some of them extremely talented for their age. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, and Adam, you've got really great projects to work on. I mean, uh, you're well known in in Australia. You 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 get the chance to to bring these guys to some pretty serious software. Yes, that's right. And I guess uh, actually, I was listening to that bio. It must be a pretty old bio that you've got there. But uh, we don't do anything uh, these days uh, that isn't uh, SQL Server 2005 and right. uh, and Visual Studio 2005. We actually implemented a few years ago the very first. Uh, .NET solution uh, that was running live. It was running uh, beta one actually of uh, ASP one zero, ASP .NET one zero. And uh, these days we've been on the beta for a fair while. So the young kids they love the betas and uh, uh, they like working through the bugs. And uh, that's I think that's that's mean it kind of levels the playing field when you're working with very new software. And you also were talking about you, that you're distributed geographically. Uh, what countries do you have? developers in uh we've got we've got uh essentially we've got 25 developers in sydney we've got five in china uh one in malaysia and a couple in brazil oh, so cool. all up there's 33 guys there's three countries three continents and three time zones 
So I guess that in itself isn't that unique. I know plenty of companies that have, have guys in different countries. I guess what's unique for us is that they're all working on the same projects. We don't have like the Chinese guys working on one project and yeah. the Brazilians working on another. We're actually all working on the same project. So tasks come in and any number of people could actually complete those tasks. And speaking of tasks, you've got uh, a unique approach to tracking tasks. What's that all about? Yeah, well, you know, there's some challenges to uh, to this to to working in the software industry, and there's it, probably even more challenges once you get a distributed workforce. And I guess when I think back in the very early days, back in in the early '90s, we had we actually set up uh, physical inboxes for everybody had their own name on these inboxes on the wall and uh, tasks would be written down and put into their inbox and they would then get done and crossed out and put into the boss's inbox. And the company grew and we started using email and we then built uh, some bug tracking systems for, for, for customers. We built some in Access and we did some VB4 ones, VB5, VB6 ones, ASP.NET ones. So we, and I've also looked at lots of different bug tracking systems but uh, uh, and some are quite good actually. But I really hate how you have to essentially enter them, uh, enter them into a database. Like right. everyone loves email. Uh, everyone sends emails, uh, bugs as emails, and I always wonder why we're developing these different systems. Well, maybe just because there isn't any good software for Outlook that uh, that lets you deal with bugs. Well. Essentially, I think uh, the whole solution uh, works well on email, okay? So have you ever noticed how people use their inbox as a to-do list? Well, more than that, yeah. I mean, it's a central repository of knowledge in my case. <laughs> yeah. So I guess um, uh, I kind of consider that emails should be sent as tasks. And I think that the rich nature of email works very well. It's... Uh, it's established. It's a trusted messaging system. Um, I could say it was. Uh, I could say it was secure if everyone's using digital signatures as well. Right. So I, I guess uh, uh, I see the folders that you can put in Outlook as a grouping of tasks. So I'm I'm kind of after uh, the guys organising their email, and so I came up with this list, uh, which is called SSW Rules to Better Email, and it goes through. Uh, how you must deal with your email, and uh, this this uh, this idea of using emails as tasks is a is a great solution if you're a single contractor. But uh, once you get into a team situation, it's got uh, some, some some unique challenges, I guess. So, um, uh, Richard, do you know how how you share folders? Yes, sir. So there's this feature in Exchange Server which I love, which doesn't seem to be commonly used, and it's uh, the public folders. And I see the public folders as essentially a shared task list. Hmm. Yeah, why now, not? The important part here is you have to have an Exchange Server to make this work, to have public well, folders really. do their thing. Well, not really. If, if you subscribe to the concept, uh, any mail server is going to do the job, really. Uh, if you look at, uh, not anyone, but many of the, the big guys, uh, Lotus Notes, that's essentially a database as well. Actually, it's more of a database than, than Exchange. Right. 
But, but uh, in terms uh, of maybe, su- support for public folders and Outlook means you're using an exchange bo- uh, server on the back yeah. end. Yeah, actually, most, most companies that uh, we work with use Outlook with Exchange, and uh, I kind of think they've already got the tools there that they need, and they don't really need to go out um, coming up with a, uh, these days, a web-based bug tracking system, which essentially enters the bugs into, into a database, and often without all the richness of the original email. I don't know how many times you've you've received an email that just has a subject that says bug and a screen capture of the whole thing. Mm. Uh, it's yeah. nice and easy just to work with that rather than having to then go and uh, enter it into a bug tracking system. I find it funny how many times I've had to cut and paste an email into a bug tracker. It, yes, and then once it gets into the bug tracker, often you know, if, if the uh, system works well, they reply to you and they say it's done, but you don't really know what they did because... You don't remember what you asked them to do, and it doesn't have the history of what you sent. You do you have any software that you've written for Outlook that makes this um, a little bit more um, cohesive as a as a tracking tool, or do you ju- are you just using the shared folders and the search capabilities and all that built in? I mean, do you have any? Do you, let me ask you this: Do you, if you do that, do you have any protocols about uh, how to format your messages so that they're easy to uh, find and and uh, you know mark? with different uh, statuses and all that? Yes, okay, all right. So, so really, any bug tracking system uh, that works well, you, get, you assign a few extra additional fields that you're not going to get inside Outlook. You're going to want to assign a priority. You're going to want to assign, allocate it to someone. You're going to want to estimate it, so you get good at estimating. So right. we don't do any task ever without estimating it. So what we actually went ahead and did is we built tools on top of Outlook and Exchange. Okay. And with all 25 of the geeks here, we, we somehow worked out to use, how to use that Outlook API. <laughs> it must, that 20, must be one of my crowning achievements. Took 25 of you to do that, though. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, that Outlook API needs cleaning up. If, yeah. there's, um, if there's a reason why keeping backward compatibility is a bad thing, that's the best example. <laughs> okay. Note to Microsoft, if you're listening. Have you talked to Microsoft about this at all? Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I guess we had to work with... Uh, we got a fair bit of support from the Outlook team. Okay. Uh, with, uh, with a lot of issues that we're having, uh, also known as uh, ridiculous bugs. So there is, working with Outlook itself is a, is a bit of a nasty challenge. But uh, I think building on top of the infrastructure of Outlook... Once you get it all working, works well. And uh, I will say the same about Exchange. Actually, uh, one of the best, um, one, one of the ways that I came across this was I did a talk at TechEd a few years ago, which was uh, querying Exchange. And uh, at the time, uh, reporting services was in beta. And uh, I think SQL Server reporting services is one of the best products to come out of Microsoft in the last, say, five years. And uh, that came. That meant that I came along and started looking at the reporting from Exchange Server as well. Hmm. Well, if you've listened to earlier episodes of .NET Rocks, you've probably heard my interviews with Mark Miller 
chief architect of Developer Express's Code Rush and Refactor products. But what you may not know is that Developer Express offers a full line of feature-complete visual components and IDE tools for Visual Studio.net. To build stunning and flexible applications, you need feature-complete components, components that work as expected each and every time. Developer Express's complete range of visual components will help you emulate today's most popular UIs without hassles or aggravation. Like all of their tools, the components are written in C-sharp and fully optimized for the .NET framework and all .NET languages. I have spent some time talking with Mark Miller about the architecture of their components and I'm very impressed. Developer Express has taken the time up front to position their components as extremely powerful and, of course, agile, ready to adapt to the challenges that lie ahead. You also may not know that Developer Express offers a comprehensive reporting platform for Windows and the web. Extra Reports is fully integrated into the Visual Studio.NET IDE and set the standard for ease of use and flexibility. With Extra Reports, you never have to cringe at the thought of having to design a report again. So take a look and see what Developer Express can do for you at www.devexpress.com. How long have you been using uh, Exchange for bug tracking? Oh, uh, since actually 5.5, so uh, many, many years. Uh, but we didn't really get all the benefits of it until we went to Exchange 2000. Yeah. So you must have upgraded to Exchange 2003 by now, Adam. Oh, yes. We've been using uh, Exchange 2003 for a while. Uh, Exchange 2003... Uh, is great. I think the Outlook Web Access upgrades uh, were uh, much needed, and I think well, we we now talk about AJAX continually, and that was kind of the uh, the the first rich type of web UI, and that web UI for us is fairly important because that's how we allow customers to view the current task list. They use the public folders in in Outlook Web Access. Right. The uh, and of course, the, I almost think it's hilarious that Microsoft made one of the original AJAX products in that Outlook Web Access. It really put the web client on the market. The number of people who've cited said, "No, no, web clients can be good. Look at Outlook Web Access." Yeah, it, it's an amazing client. Yes, and I don't think the Exchange team got enough credit for it. Hey, Adam, there's a question in the uh, chat room from a guy named Beavis. He says, this whole using Exchange in public folders totally goes against what Microsoft has been recommending for years. They say that developers should stay away from public folders and that they may be removed in the future. Do you agree with that? Ah, that's, uh, that's a really sad uh, uh, situation that Microsoft are considering. And what they're considering doing is removing public folders uh, in a future version. Uh, like they're considering uh, moving to SQL Server in a future version, so it's a it's a fair way off. It's not in the next version, um, which won't be for. Why are they thinking about removing? Oh, why do you think they're, they're thinking about removing public folders? Why? So when you think that Microsoft, you think that when you said uh, get rid of the backward compatibility in Outlook, that's what they were talking. That's what they thought you meant. Uh, maybe. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was actually referring in general I, I know that, yeah. to uh, backward compatibility being you know, killing good software. I can't believe you but, answered that. <laughs> but, 
but I, I kind of think it's, um, it's because many people don't use public folders that, uh, that Microsoft think they're, that, they're not that important. It's one of the best features of Exchange Server, and uh, I think, if anything, they're going to try to push you into SharePoint. Yeah. Well, that, that raises a good question. I don't see them crush. removing public folders. Yeah, that raises a good question. Why not use SharePoint for this kind of thing? Well, it, it, it doesn't really matter what the, what, uh, which store it's being used in, if it's in uh, SharePoint or, it's, or if it's in Exchange, as I long see. as the original email is being stored and as long as you don't have to enter the email again into another system. If you can add uh, additional properties to an email, which you will be able to once SharePoint is running on a, on a uh, SQL Server 2005 backend where they add an extra XML field, which allows you to add ad hoc properties, that will work fine. Mm. They just don't have that infrastructure at the moment, and they won't remove public folders until they do. Okay. Yeah, the bottom line is Microsoft, in their support of backward compatibility, is not going to leave these big customers that are using public folders in a lurch. Right. There's going to be an a automated upgrade path. There has to be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm just looking sense. at an article here that's talking about a major university in the U.S. when told they were that public folders might be deprecated, freaking out because they used them so extensively. And that, to me, is just classic case of, all right, Microsoft's realized they're going to have to move away from this technology. They must provide a path. Yeah. yeah and, and the same would go if when SQL Server is powered by... Uh, SQL, sorry, when Exchange Server is powered by SQL Server... Uh, you know, no, nobody cares as long as um, the the email system works the same, which it will. We're just talking about sharing email. Right. Yeah, that's, of course, the expectation. If you're going to change the storage engine, don't break the product. Well, Adam, um, is there anything else that you want to talk about in terms of the, the task management, or shall we move on to your best practices list? Uh, let's talk about let's, – let's move on and talk about a few rules. All right. How did this uh, so, How did this project start? You know, this putting down of of rules and gathering them. Well, I don't know really how it started. It kind of started in the oh, very I'll, beginning. I know. See, now I'm going to reveal a secret about Adam. <laughs> oh, no. I don't know if he necessarily wants it out, but I know exactly where this comes from. What most people do not know about Adam is his history. Before he was a geek, what did the boy do for a living? Uh, Are you going to tell him? Army. Well, I was in the um, army. I was an accountant. <laughs> there you go. Not only that, but a tax accountant, if I remember correctly. That's right. So I'm not sure if I put it down to being an accountant or be, or or being uh, in the army, but I certainly became disciplined. I moved out of the accounting the accounting field because uh, it's not real easy to pull chicks when you tell them you're an accountant. And. Uh, <laughs> Back then, geeks didn't have. Uh, uh, I think geeks these days have an even worse reputation. <laughs> At least accountants go home and don't do any work. So, in other words, you have an anal retentive streak. Richard is saying. Uh, <laughs> I, I think so. It, it, um, it basically started from day dot of the company. We we created a series of word documents and we put all the rules of how we were going to to work. There was not too much technology back then, and the rules we had were for for DBase and uh, and for Fox, and uh, then they they today they basically cover everything from 
exactly how to use email and how to use Instant Messenger to yeah. how to set up your SQL Server or how you implement exception logging into your application. And I even so, like the uh, I even like the the, the UI t- rules that you have, you know, about right, margins yes. and buttons and fonts and things like that. And the yes, naming actually, conventions, all these things are valuable. Uh, what I find interesting when I read this is I actually see this almost more as like you send all your employees here. This is like a handbook for working at SSW. Right. Yeah, we actually have a lot of internal rules as well, but but um, anything that we can, we make public, and. I guess the the whole thing is uh, there's essentially uh, a lot of ways to do the exact same thing. If I ask a developer to show a set of records on a form, uh, you know, I don't know whether he's going to use the data grid or repeater or he's going to use data sets or objects or embedded SQL or stored procs or binding in the designer or he's going to bind in code. Uh, there's just too many choices that I don't want him to have to make. I just want him to do the same standard thing every time. I don't want him to name the projects in his in his app differently. You know, I don't want to hear it called engine. I want it to be called business. Or uh, I don't want to go through the argument every on every project. Are we going to use data sets or are we going to use business objects? I want to say by default we're using data sets unless there's an exception. So I don't right. know if you noticed, but when you set up a project... Uh, Let's just say a Windows Forms project, there's a lot of decisions that almost every team makes repetitively. Are we going to use uh, visual inheritance or user controls? Are we going to use MDI or SDI? Are we going to use business objects or, or, the, or data sets? You know? And there's just uh, a lot of these choices that happen every time. So I basically am reducing the choice of those type of um, arbitrary things. So it seems to me, as time has gone by, you've just sort of rounded up more and more of the thinking around these issues and put them all in one place. I mean, there's quite a gambit of things on your, your rules page. Yes. Um, this, has, this has many advantages and many disadvantages, I guess. Um, like one of the biggest advantages it has is when we have, uh, we have a very simple induction process. When someone new joins our company, basically we have them up and running on live projects on the, on the fourth day because uh, we have uh, the induction process, which takes the first three days. And during those right. days, they, you know, they, they learn uh, exactly how to configure their PC with all the tools that we use and they learn how to estimate jobs and how they're going to speak to customers exactly the way everybody else does. Um, right. And, and when I say this induction process, I'm not talking about reallocating another guy to act as a trainer. What they do is they get their PC, they've got web access, and they they read and complete a series of these. Um, they read all these rules, and they complete a series of these small exercises, which uh, which confirms that they understand all the important pieces. It's basically an exam. Uh, I would call it an exercise, but if uh, okay, yeah. Okay. You just want evidence that they've read and understood what you've asked them to read. Correct. What is the what is the vastness? What's the scope? How many of these rules do you have in this list? Oh, there's. I've never counted them to be honest, but uh, there's there's fifty one out in the public. Are we talking hundreds? Uh, There's fifty one pages of public rules, and each one of those possibly has about fifty each. So we're talking thousands. Thousands. Mm. Yeah, five thousand. 
And then there's all the, public, the private ones as well. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of um, internal ones as well. Uh, and obviously, that number of rules has a downside. Uh, right. <laughs> Discoverability. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, essentially, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's many. There's, and there's many that are quite important, and there's many that's less important. Uh, you know, we have rules on curly braces. I'm not going to have, uh, well, I've already had all the arguments on whether we have the curly brace on the new line or the same line. I'm not going to have those arguments anymore. We right. we make a consensus, do a bit of investigation, we make a decision, and that's the way it goes. Um, there's a lot of other things that are probably less important that you know con- that consume cycles, and you know, in- Windows Forms actually have a Microsoft have have a um, a guideline which says the exact size of a button. Now, most developers uh, don't don't bother with it. Um, they randomly choose other things but i don't i want it done that way i don't want any cycles wasted on it i want it done that way so i kind of uh i needed a way to automatically check these projects so yeah so how do you do that i mean that's uh, well, uh how how do you go through five thousand rules by you know by looking at that's a lot of time wasted well essentially uh what I tried to do was automate you know, as much of this code quality as I, as I could. Just like the email tool we developed, we then developed uh, this tool to support these, um, these processes. So what we ended up doing was we developed this tool called uh, SSW Code Auditor. And essentially it uses uh, the power of regexes. Wow. And it's, uh, every developer has to run this over before issuing their their test, which we call a test please, uh, it must be code auditor compliant and FX cop compliant and uh, we have another tool called SQL Auditor which checks SQL Server. Excellent. And so is this a sort of thing that runs automatically when you compile? Uh, it, it's integrated into Visual Studio or you can run it as a command line or you can just use the GUI. Okay. So what does the auditor do, exactly? Um, well, Code Auditor essentially is a little bit like FXCOP. FXCOP works well. It, what it does is it analyzes the assemblies, but it doesn't analyze the actual code that the developer writes. So Code Auditor themselves, Code Auditor uh, itself, uh, what it does is actually analyzes the source code of any, to- any project that has... Uh, has text files. Right. Okay. And then, how many, how many rules are you talking about for your code? In, in Code Auditor, it has a, has a couple of hundred rules. I think it has about 170 rules. Wow. Now I'm, but, and obviously, you could turn these on and off and add your own, that kind of thing? Yeah, you turn, you, you, uh, you turn them off if you don't agree with them, or, but if you don't agree with the entire rule... If you've got an exception for that particular rule in that piece of code, then you comment and Code Auditor will skip uh, reporting the the exception on that piece of code. You know, I'm I'm just looking through some of the rules on your page, and we'll link to them. Um, some of these are, you know, just a single rule might might cover like a, a really big deal. Like, check this out. I don't know how to say it any better. Number 13, do you use XP wisely? This is just rules for successful projects. 
And it says, extreme programming is a big concept which we try to use here. I don't adhere to every idea, but there are some very practical rules I follow which improves the way we develop on large projects. One, never set a deadline more than three weeks from the previous deadline. Deliverables become a lot easier to manage and meet when they are small. Two, all production code is done in pairs. Too expensive, some people say, and yes, it's pricey, but it's better quality. Three, write tests before you write code. Unit tests become a way of life and are, again, expensive at the beginning but pay off during the course of the project. And then you have a link to rules to better unit tests. So so that's pretty awesome. I mean, that's just like one little thing, that one little rule that covers like three tips for using extreme programming. A couple others here. Um, can you make a setup exe in one step? And then you have what is essentially an article on how to create a good setup exe. So it's not just like a tip or a rule. Some some of these are fairly fairly in depth. So I might drill into just a couple of those that you just mentioned, Carl. Okay. Uh, when every every uh, project that we do, some are very large and some are quite small. But but essentially it must be broken down into what we call release plans. And a release plan is, uh, by default, they, they try to fit in as many tasks as they can into 160 hours. So that's typically two guys, uh, two weeks. And if the project, is, uh, the maximum that we can do is three weeks. We don't allow uh, any bigger than that. So, that, so it's kind of, uh, you know, one of the, the most important things about dealing with clients is typically about uh, communication and being visible. Mm-hmm. So uh, we try to make the releases as quickly as you can, which is uh, a couple of weeks, and at least that way it's also repeatable. Whether it's a big project or a small project, they're still the same size. So if we can't fit it in, we make another another public folder uh, and we move, we break the task down, we move it into into that. And and the good thing about it is basically customers email us tasks or changes. Uh, or bugs, and you just drag it into the appropriate release, and uh, then you reply, done, with what you did, like the new screen capture or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And at the end of two weeks, they actually get to test, test that, uh, that code. So they're always, even if they see nothing for, if they don't see a new version for a couple of weeks, they at least see that we're fairly visible in, in showing what's been done, and I think that's a, a great way to work when you're working with clients. It's just an incredible depth of uh, knowledge and 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 experience in these uh, in these rules. It's just amazing. And, and uh, just talking about the the XP wisely, the the second point there about pairs right. is we deviate slightly from uh, extreme programming how they uh, do everything in pairs on the one computer. We don't do that. Everything here is done in pairs, but uh, they all have their own computers and. Essentially, what we do is we try to make them sit close together, and I can tell you that uh, I feel like I get all the benefits of of what pairing does, which essentially is when you're stuck, you get help. I will tell you when I walk around the office here, and I uh, I will see one of the guys often leaning over, looking at the other guy's screen when he's hit a bug. So when they're sitting very close together, they will naturally. Uh, just lean over, help that guy get past his bug, and then he goes back to his own thing, and they're yeah. both working on the same release. Yeah, I've I remember working in an environment where everybody had their own office, and and you know you don't bug the the developers don't bug each other, and you know often you could 
you could spin your wheels for a long time. And this is, of course, even before Google and Yahoo and, and anything like that, before there were any resources. So uh, I remember that being very, you know, challenging. Yeah. I think the main and- issue is to resist thrashing. Right, is that wasted time of you trying to figure out a problem going around in circles over and over and over again. As long as there's always two people working on a given problem, thrashing's almost impossible. Yeah. You just don't get there. Yep. And that third point you just brought up about the unit testing, uh, it's fairly important for me because often the developers hear, oh, how many unit tests do I write? I better write, uh, you know, I hear I should have, I aim for 100% code coverage. Well, as far as I'm concerned, 100% uh, code coverage is 100% impractical. And so I only essentially allow them to write unit tests for a series of things, which is um, uh, dependencies, like when there's an external dependency, uh, DLLs, uh, web services, etc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, any fragile type of code, like regular expressions, must have a unit test. You can't write a regular, you can't add some uh, a regular expression into your code without uh, a couple of unit tests uh, covering it. And when you've got calculations. Uh, and there's also a, a few other cases where you're allowed to write unit tests, which are basically to do with flow forms. Because that's, that's where the real bugs happen, isn't it? I mean, the other, the other, a lot of the other bugs now get caught by the compiler and the environment sort of in real time, right? That's right. I mean... It's the fragile stuff, the the stuff that in the, in the dependencies, the code that you don't see. Yeah, that's smart, Adam. Very smart. Thanks. <laughs> it's been a lot of work, and actually, you get a lot of feedback from the guys on uh, on the web. They there's there's many companies out there that tell me that they follow all the rules, and then they ask you to update it from from this to this. Yeah, uh, you, you know, must. They've, have, they've yeah. made an improvement. During the events Richard and I held at user groups all over the United States last year on the .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2005 road trip, we asked the audience if anyone uses Telerik controls. Without fail, the hands would go up, and the feedback was clear. Telerik controls are awesome. The Q4 2005 version of their RAD control suite is out now, and I'm so excited to let you know that it comes with no less than five, that's right, five new products. These are Toolbar, Input, Calendar, Upload, and a unique control called RAD Window. The new volume also includes major updates of Telerik Grid, combo box, and callback products. The data grid release is particularly interesting. Telerik RAD Grid now offers advanced out-of-the-box AJAX support, filtering, automatic insertion of records, support for the automatic data editing operations of ASP.NET 2.0 data source controls, and much more. Those of you who are interested in AJAX will be keen to learn that Telerik has also released a new version of their AJAX suite, RAD callback, which offers considerable performance improvements and two new controls. That alone is loads of new stuff for a single release, isn't it? But obviously the guys at Telerik don't think so, as they've also added .NET 2.0 versions of all products of the suite, 
They are built and compiled for the official release of Visual Studio 2005 and are offered for free with every product license. So I suggest that you visit the Telerik website at www.telerik.com. Check out the online demos and download the new RAD control suite Q4 2005. I was about to ask the question, how live are these rules? How often do you find you're updating them? Oh, well, that's quite uh, quite interesting, really, I guess, because uh, everything here is, is, I guess, what you would call extremely re- regimented. But we need to be able to adapt to change. And uh, essentially what happens when a developer believes he needs an exception to that, he, he goes and investigates the current rule, and the rule's that are up there at the moment are basically just documenting decisions and experiences that we've we've had from past projects. So let's just say the rule said to use data sets and not business objects. Uh, there'll be a series of reasons why we use that for you know the data binding and other reasons. But new versions come out, uh, or they might be working on a very large system, and the performance of data sets just doesn't hack it, and the benefits that you get isn't worth the the negatives. So he'd do some investigation, and essentially there'd be another rule added. So you'd use data sets except where uh, you, you need performance and there'd be specific performance numbers as to what you, um, you know, why we're changing it and uh, when you would use the objects and what, and what benefit you'd get. Actually, we have another rule if you have a... I think it's uh, the bottom of that page you were just uh, referring to. Right. You're not allowed to ever improve performance without measuring it first. I don't know how many times guys... Uh, Start saying they changed some code for some performance reasons, but we don't do it uh, unless we've already timed it and we reply. So essentially, they send themselves a task. That's one of the most important parts. They don't do any work unless they've got a task. So they send themselves a task to investigate the performance, and uh, they would say, "Look, I I just improved that form from from four seconds to two seconds, and this is the code I changed." You know, here's another page with 53 rules in it called uh, SSW rules to better email. Email. So this doesn't have anything to do with development. Uh, That's right. Here's number 30. I'm just picking at random. Do you respond to each email individually? AKA, don't respond to a series of emails in one email. If you receive separate emails, respond to each email individually. Answer a few emails uh, uh, individually. Don't answer a few emails in one email. Each so email is a little... drive you nuts when, when yeah. you send someone an email and you say, uh, can you fix this form? And then you send another, there's a bug over here. And then there's a, there's, oh, would you, would you investigate uh, changing this wizard? And then someone just replies with a, a random, a random history. Uh, yeah, all fixed. Yeah. So right. each each one is actually fixed, and and actually when we use our uh, our Outlook comment in the extreme emails, what we each one actually has the amount of time that was taken. So I think the best the best clients you have are those ones that are educated and understanding, and the worst are completely uneducated. So what we try to do is we try to uh, educate them via uh, giving them more information on each task, and every task that we ever complete. It has in the bottom, extreme emails just puts it there automatically, or you could just write it there manually, uh, how long we estimated and how long it took. So when they get their, their debrief back at the end of the time, they can, they can see how long we originally estimated the, the release and how long it actually took, 
and probably fairly importantly, how many additional items we added in since we started the release. Here's, a, here's another one, SSW rules to better interfaces. And in better interfaces, there's two. There's one for web and there's one for Windows. This is Windows interfaces, and you have 72 rules in this. Um, uh, and, and here's like number 18. Do you strike through completed items? When you're giving an update on progress on a task list or a schedule, strike out the items that have been completed. Not only does it visually explain where you are, it also gives you a great sense of satisfaction. These yeah, are... actually, uh, Outlook uh, has a nice bit of UI in when you look at the task. When you actually complete a task, they actually use the strike through there, which is kind of nice. When you're developing a UI for a customer and, and you're showing them active and completed ones, yeah, you know that rule basically says show the completed ones with strike through. That's the UI rule. Yeah. Here's another one. Do you avoid capturing incorrect data? When asking for an opinion, do you give people the option of having no opinion at all? If you only provide yes or no as answers to the question, do you like apples, then you force people to make a decision which may not be correct. And if there's only yes and no, maybe they only like cooked apples, not raw ones. Maybe when asking any question in which don't know or don't care is a valid response, Always include an option to opt out of answering. So, like, yes, no, or cannot say. Yeah, I'm sure Andrew Bruss would have a lot more to say on this topic, but there's no point in uh, in having business intelligence systems when the data that you're capture, capturing is um, in is actually, you know, not their intended meaning. So many times uh, the default is what people leave because they're just trying to get through a system and they don't really care. So it should always be defaulted to, uh, well, reduce the number of defaults, essentially. If I default my, my, my form on the internet for downloads as what country you're from and I default it to the USA, which most systems seem to do, then uh, when I download it and I don't care what I'm entering, I'm just trying to get the download, you're assuming I'm from the USA. Right. Here's a great one uh, in the same list, number 28, Menu. Do you know the seven items every help menu needs? A good help menu should have these seven items in it. One, online user guide. Two, knowledge base. Three, make a suggestion. Four, report a bug. Five, check for updates. Six, run unit tests. Run unit and seven about the product name. Run unit tests in the help file for an end user product. Yeah, well, um, I've had the odd question about this one, but uh, I strongly believe it, and there's quite a number of people that have followed it. Um, basically, every single one of our applications has those uh, those seven menu items. Uh, probably the most important one there, I would say, is the is the user is the uh, is the knowledge base. Actually, when you receive a support question, you try not to answer the support question too often in in the email. If they're asking a question, it's a valid question, it's not clear, there should be a knowledge base article. So you, you refer right. them to the knowledge base article and, uh, and that way they start becoming more familiar with your product. You know, the keen guys are going to read a lot, of, lot more knowledge base articles about the product. But that one that you're just referring to about um, running the unit tests, you know, I, I kind of think it's uh, strange that, people, that developers often, I've seen a few blogs about this, this particular one, where they say, look, you don't understand the concept of a unit test. The unit test is meant to check what a developer has written. He compiles it up. He checks they're all they're all green and all good to go. And then he makes a building. Send, he sends it out to the customer. 
But the idea of unit tests for me is really about checking for fragile code and dependencies. So just because it, right. everything runs on my machine doesn't mean that it should always run on someone else's machine. What if uh, I've got a unit test checking for a web service and, and that web service's um, WSDL changes? What if uh, I'm checking to write a file and I don't have permissions to write the file? So one of the first things That's that happens cool, if someone reports, yeah, if someone reports a bug, then what we do is we say, can you get all the unit tests? Do all the unit tests run in your machine? So that eliminates one problem. Yeah, that's that's awesome, actually. One of the saddest things about it is that um, with VSTS, all the cool unit testing, there's no external harness, so there's no way that you can, if you choose to use VSTS and the unit testing in there, you get to uh, have that type of harness that NUnit right has. You, you so can't ship you it with the product. No, you can't. You could you could write one yourself, but um, I want the, I want uh, Microsoft to do it for me. You know, speaking of, of course. speaking of official support, the, you have a lot of rules here. What how how comfortable can developers feel in knowing that these best practices are just our best practices and not just because Adam says so? Well, I guess uh, <laughs> I guess they're voluntary. There's there's nothing uh, compulsory about it, but. Um, I can tell you that uh, every email that we've received where they've disagreed with something, we've made the rule a little bit clearer why it why it's the case, and we continue to do it all the time. Yeah. So we you know we love the feedback, and we um, uh, we think in every given case they're correct. But uh, you know it's it, you know things are always changing, and people are learning new things all the time, and that's what the, that's what they are. They're best practices in a certain case. You follow them. Well, that's uh, that, you know, you can't argue with experience. So, ha- some of these though come right out of design guides and style guides, right? That's right. Some of them, uh, many of them, have references to uh, to uh, other places or backup. Uh, Microsoft kind of started this when they released the Wizard uh, in probably I think it was about oh ninety eight. I think they did a fair bit of work on. Uh, releasing a whole lot of style guides, but they haven't really kept it live. And some of them are valid, and a lot of them, they don't even fold themselves. I think if you look at some small issues inside Visual Studio 2005, yeah. even the back and next buttons, I think they're called um, previous instead of back. Now, they've got a guideline up on their website that checks that that button says, that, that says the button should always say back with a, with a less than symbol, uh, but they don't do it themselves. And uh, hmm. uh, if they ran code auditor over it, they would have actually found it. Here's here's one more I'm going to share with everybody because this is obviously going to be very popular. SSW rules to better Google rankings. Ooh. Uh, this is one of the most heavily heavily hit pages on the entire site, believe it or not. But there's a lot of things that people... Uh, we spent a fair bit of time actually investigating uh, this because Google don't give you very much help. And uh, if anything, they uh, they want less on that page. But, I'm sure uh, they do. A lot of it, yeah. A lot of it's common sense. Uh, it's it's and actually some of the rules in there are actually in Code Auditor. But if if it's quite common to put on your your site to to write a, a paragraph of text and then put a, a hyperlink that says more information or details or something, that type of thing uh, really does nothing for Google. Uh, you really want to say something like uh, more on unit testing. So 
that helps Google. And there's a there's a number of other things like the the size of pages and um, the way you link back and forth to pages. Huh. Wow, this is great. So um, this uh, all of these rules are all of them or most of them are are wrapped up in your application, the auditor. Oh no, not all of them. Uh, uh, there's, you know, regexes can't do everything, which I'm sure, which I'm sure a lot of people have worked out. Uh, regexes can be a bit of a nightmare, right? And uh, you know, they can't really do dependencies. They can't check multiple different. Um, you know, they can't. There's not. There's only so much you can do with regexes, right? And uh, we're actually adding support in. We've had a lot of requests for adding support for writing uh, .NET assemblies, which we're actually working on. Oh, cool. So soon you will be able to do anything. So you've got the code auditor for Visual Studio .dot net, and then there's also a SQL auditor for SQL Server because you have a nice set of rules around the way SQL Server should be used, the table naming and and rules for indexing and and so forth. Yes, there's a there's a basically a series of similar type of rules, but they're not. It's not done via regexes. This is actually done, uh, you know, using DMO, looping through, finding out what's in there, giving them recommendations on how to on uh, you know, naming conventions, the different types of data types, the way indexes should be done, uh, referential integrity. Uh, it gives you advice how, which which fields in a table uh, should be the clustered ones. Now, uh, essentially, you can't have a situation where it's going to tell you everything in SQL Server because it really depends on how it's used. And if you know what you're doing, yeah. uh, you... You don't follow it, but if you don't know what you're doing, it's going to give you a bit of an idea. Adam, you think this at least lets you focus on the right things. That's right. We try. Do you think this would make a good book, or is it? You think it's just good the way it is online? Well, I've actually had a few people come to me and ask me, um, you know, could could we turn this into a book? And I've considered it, uh, but you know, the problem with a book as soon as it's printed, it's dead. Yeah, I know. So, so it kind of. Uh, I might make a little bit of money out of it, but I probably prefer to... I've only got so much time, so I kind of prefer to just to invest it in keeping it as current as you can. And, you know, old-style old thinking would say, you know, why are you giving away all your secrets? But uh, this has actually been a huge boon for your business, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, it's definitely... I think the rules uh, were actually there before any of the products existed, actually. But... Uh, I'm I'm sure they drive some traffic to the products as well, so it can't you know. But you know the best thing about it, and probably why one of the reasons I share is because I I want uh, I think everyone should follow the same thing. I think what's happening yeah. at the moment, one of the worst things we have in the industry, uh, is probably uh, business solutions are too expensive to create, uh, and they're not of that great quality either. So it's a it's not a great situation. I think uh, I wish Microsoft would publish these rules and then more people would be following it. So when you picked up a project that another developer did, rather than spending half your time saying, what has he done here, Why, this, this application is rubbish, uh, you would know that he's followed you know, a consistent way and he's documented when he's deviated from, from a guideline. Have you uh, done any advocacy for these rules within Microsoft? I think the PAG team and that are a lot more interested in infrastructure. Uh, uh, this, a lot of these rules, uh, 
uh, I guess, not hitting the spots thereafter. But I'm assuming that once they've uh, once they've they've done a lot of their their work, that they'll get a bit of an interest in this. And I'm assuming one day a lot of these rules will go up on their site. It's great stuff. Form. Great stuff, Adam. So you're prepared to uh, to do a few giveaways for your code auditor. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, you can. I'm happy to give away ten copies. They can have uh, any product on the site that they want. I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you divvy them out. All right. So what we're going to do is, we'd like you to send an email to uh, .net rocks at franklins.net, and uh, in the subject, it's going. You're going to say. Um, tell, tell the favorite rule that they like on the site, <laughs> and you pick them. Well, mention the code auditor contest in the subject. Code auditor contest in the subject. And then mention the code auditor contest in the subject. And then you can uh, pick your favorite rule from the site. And we're going to have the links up there on the page for .NET Rocks, on the .NET Rocks page this week. And uh, we'll pick randomly 10 winners from those emails. And we'll send them to you, Adam. And I suppose you'll take it from there. Okay, no problem. Well, gee, uh, Richard, should we uh, should we ask him the question? I mean, this this is the coolest thing I've downloaded all week. I don't know about you. <laughs> you got to ask him the question. All right. Well, what's the coolest thing that you've seen online lately? Uh, the coolest thing I've seen is actually egosurf.org. All right. And I'll tell you why um, I like this. Uh, I like this. Uh, well, I'm sure Scotty, Scott Hanselman actually uh, uh, gave me this idea. But essentially, <laughs> you can type in your name and you can see the um, see how many ego points you get, which basically does a search of uh, Google, Yahoo, MSN, and all these things. But I'll tell you why I think it's cool, because it's efficient. <laughs> One of the things that we've done every month, on the first of every month, what we do is we measure how our products are going. So we measure uh, how many um, backward links we have for, for, say, each product. So let's just say Code Auditor, uh, how many backward links on uh, Google, how many blog entries there are, how many um, ones on Yahoo and MSN. So we see how we're growing. We have a little chart showing that the product is growing. So I think that if you've got something similar like that, rather than, you know, that, that spreadsheet actually takes uh, a couple of hours to update. You can come here, type in the name, and it does all the surf- surfing for you. This is it pretty cool. It gives you a rating. And it also, uh, what else does it do? Um, uh, it has this really nice Ajax implementation. So you can, so it's just a nice way that they've actually gone ahead and done it. It takes a bit of time. but it's, I see um, that, yeah. Yeah, slick interface, and at the end you get these great little meters coming up. <laughs> so, Carl, what's your score? Well, I put in my name, and uh, I, my name, Carl Franklin, is also shared with a uh, black movie director who directs Denzel Washington. He directed Devil in a Blue Dress and also um, Out of Time most recently. He's a good director, and before that he was an actor in the 70s. And uh, so sometimes I get hits on him, but uh, I put in the for the blog and stuff, you know, .netrocks.com, so here goes my... Number. I don't know. I get this meter, but it seems to be moving a little bit. 
But it does say That's search. That's because it's updating. It's updating until it finds all all references about you on all the different. Well, sites, I have a uh, circular meter that says the search is completed, and my ego points is thirteen oh two. That's all right. I searched on. I searched on .NET Rocks www.dotnetrocks.com, and it points are over five thousand now. Yeah, I I did both my name and .netrocks.com. So that was that's the coolest website I've seen. That is uh, pretty the tool, cool. The the coolest tools I've seen come from uh, the the web controls that are coming from Component Art, the Ajax type controls. And uh, the coolest thing I did last year was uh, was climbing Kilimanjaro with uh, with a few guys, including Richard Campbell. And I can tell you, when you see a big fellow like Richard about to pass you, it's uh, kind of like when you're jogging <laughs> and you jog. When you're jogging, you know, and you're jogging past a pretty girl, you kind of straighten your back and you you increase your pace for about 15 meters. Uh, that's that's kind of what happened every time I could hear uh, hear Richard right on my tail. I seem to recall I was panting a lot too. There was, there was a lot of panting by everyone, and gee, you sound like a like a rhinoceros when you're too close to someone. <laughs> and there's not enough air for both of you. I'll be sure to pull that picture from Kilimanjaro out for the website there, Adam. Oh, thanks, Richard. <laughs> you remember the picture? I, I, I believe the I title I put on that picture was "This is not what a metrosexual should look like." <laughs> That's right. <laughs> was that before or after you blew chunks? This was. Uh, where was that? That was that was actually close to the just starting out. It was at. Uh, uh, wasn't it Arrow? It was at the lower campsite. Yeah, actually, Rich's hardest day was the first day, and he quickly yeah, got true. faster and faster. It was incredible. He just um, he's he's a just in time uh, fitness freak. <laughs> 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 he's efficient. He doesn't take too much. Uh, he just he just needs to do what he needs to do. And uh, that was a great effort. Actually, one of the best things I've done in my life, let alone last year. Are you going to do another mountain? Uh, I've got plans to climb uh, some other ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. You guys want to make plans right here? Go ahead. Go ahead and make plans. Go ahead. Uh, we're thinking of Fuji. I'm talking to Tom Howe about it at the moment. He's coming. Oh, Tom Howe's actually coming out for our code camp here, which is, uh, oh, yeah. we have a code. We had, we had the very first code camp outside uh, the USA and it's quite, uh, it's quite a good thing. And we've got, uh, one of our mates, Tom Howe, is coming out. He's going to do a great session on business consulting. So we're going to have one non-techie session at the uh, at the user group at the uh, code camp. Excellent. And then after that, we've got plans to go to Fuji. Awesome. All right. Well, you heard it here first. He's going to Fuji. We'll find it. Richard, you going to join him? Yes, I am. Got my flights already booked. Bringing the girls. You're gonna f- you're gonna climb Mount Fuji too? Yes, I am. You know what I'm going to climb? The stairs to my bed, and then I'm going to sleep for about 15 hours. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, listen, uh, Adam, thanks for coming on the show. It was a pleasure meeting last year, and uh, it's certainly been a pleasure uh, reading all these rules. I'm sure the listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Thanks. No problem. Thanks for having me, Carl. You bet. See you, Rich. Okay. We'll speak soon. We'll see you next week on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. Dotnet Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Time for it. Life is hard.